respect to the people of the Woi Wurrung and Bun Wurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations on whose unceded lands the SIN office and studios stand. SIN Media respectfully acknowledges their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. SIN Media also acknowledges the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches and on which SIN partner organisations stand. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Race Platform today. We're interviewing a wonderful Nicola Zara who has been the president of Radio Monash and is on their current journey of understanding and receiving a diagnosis of autism, which is an absolutely amazing experience to go through and is one that has been up and downhill for Nick. Um, very stressful. I have a lot of responsibilities to take on and it's been very up and downhill battle with taking on all these multiple responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Tell us about um, your um, sort of, so, you, so you've begun seeking a diagnosis. It's not official yet. But um, so how did you sort of uh, discover that you are part of the autism community and sort of begin to sort of accept, you know, that you are part of this community and sort of come to terms with the fact you are autistic? So how did you Mm -hmm. sort of begin to sort of, you know, notice that you are probably autistic? Well, the first time I actually thought I might be was back when I was, I think I was nine years old um, when there was a new student um at my school who had relatively severe autism and so and ADHD so they um basically taught us a lot about it um so it would be more accepting to him and a lot of I guess what I learned about that I felt resonated with me especially of the I guess liking order and structure and like um I don't know, like have liking having everything in a, a rhythm and a routine and um I guess feeling like I don't necessarily fit in, especially socially. Um but basically I when I told my family about that, they they basically said, Oh no, you're not you got tested when you were younger. And um but like they the the test when I was younger was kind of just like not an in-depth one. They kind of just panned it off because I was going fine in kindergarten or however old I was. So then a few years later, I read the book, uh, The Curious Incident Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And again, that is something I related to quite a bit. Um, But I guess I also just kind of justified it because I was like, oh, I have been tested. I am not autistic. Um, even though I resonate with this character and my interpretation of the book is completely different to any of my teachers. Um, then fast forward again to I was 20 or 21 and I found out I had ADHD. Um, I knew there was something different about how I thought like my whole life. I didn't know what it was. I didn't really know much about autism or ADHD. Um but as soon as I mentioned it to a doctor, they're like, oh, okay, you definitely have it. Got tested really quickly, got my diagnosis really quickly. Um, but as I was talking to my psychologist about um, an eating disorder, which I've had on and off for 
I'll say six or so years at this point. And she said that this diagnosis, oh no, so that eating disorder fits very closely in the, fits very well in the autism spectrum. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's called ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And I'll send a bunch of readings on it and see if I resonated with it. And I definitely did. So from that point on, um, she asked me if I wanted to investigate further. And I was like, at the time, I was a bit unsure about it because I didn't know much about it, autism, and I was still fresh to it, knowing I have ADHD. Um, so then I guess also the other reason was because it was a, it was a kind of a low priority in my point because the main reason I see psychologists is for depression, not um, neurodivergency because... I feel like I've kind of built up mechanisms in my life to get through life. Um, but I guess the more I dig into my, the reasons behind my mental health, um, the more I'm like, I think that maybe um, being on the spectrum is contributing to it. So then again, I'm seeing a new psychologist who was in, as soon as she met me quite interested in this journey for diagnosis. So she's kind of reignited that. And I've just done a test a few weeks ago, and I guess I'll find out next Friday where to go from there because like I'm probably am on the spectrum, but if it's significant enough for me to go ahead of a diagnosis is the next question. Um, yes. So I was diagnosed as a child. I vaguely remember I'm going to a place and having some person stick, um, you know, some sounds to make me listen to these specific sounds. It was a very mm -hmm. stressful experience. Mm -hmm. And then I came out and I never was told about this. I didn't even know what this was. I thought it was literally an ear doctor. Mm -hmm. And then I was at a concert or something. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a person in front of me in the seat who was rocking. He's like on a rocking, like rocking back and forth. Mm -hmm. I thought this person rocking back and forth. Um, person is autistic, according to my mum. So my mum said, person is autistic. I'm like, do I have that too? And she said, yes, you do. And mm. it's like that was a bit emotional because it was a very awkward way to find that out. Mm -hmm. and it was just very difficult to, you know, be told that in this way. And I wish, you know, maybe she was more upfront about it, you know, from day one because it really did elaborate on a lot of things why mm -hmm. you know, I just didn't click with people. Mm -hmm. why, you know, I didn't click with, you know, some people, you know, people sort of understand like, you know, all this socialization, build a strong friendship in like five minutes. And mm -hmm. I couldn't do that. I couldn't sort of build a relationship with somebody. Um, I was very lone based, sort of wanting to hang out by myself. Just mm -hmm. not really able to sort of, you know, form a long term friendship. But unfortunately, you know, I wasn't told about this diagnosis. I wasn't informed that it was part of my life. And I feel that if I was told about it from a young age, I would have, you know, had a better understanding of myself and been able to sort of mold with people and back then the whole idea with autism was that you know you're cured from it you don't have to you know deal with it in your life mm -hmm. so how old were you when you found out i'm going to say around 10 okay yeah actually even 11 maybe it mm -hmm. was very old yeah um, you know, you should, you know, you should have told, they should have told me, you know, from day one. Yeah, but absolutely. The idea was that I'd be, you know, 
cured, I guess. I had a very stressful day and, you know, it's part of, you know, being autistic is, you know, you always overschedule things. You always overdo yourself. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, I had to break, to make heartbreak decision to pull myself out of an audition because I'm like, I could never be in a play, be a costume designer of a play and have all these responsibilities at once. It's just too much for me. Mm. And, you know, too much for anyone actually. And, you know, autistic people kind of sometimes feel that we often have to overcompensate, take on so much responsibility just to prove to ourselves we can do everything, we, you know, do everything. And that sort of, you know, part and parcel about, you know, being autistic. But I didn't mm-hmm. find out, you know, till, you know, even though I was child diagnosed. And a lot of people say at the time, you know, being a, a girl, being child diagnosed is, you know, very difficult being. Mm-hmm. A girl that has been, you know, diagnosed, very rare, but I don't yeah. think it really is. Um, you know, I think that, you know, if you, back then I think if you showed the symptoms of autism, you were diagnosed at an early age. Yeah. It also depends how well you mask. Yes. As well. I, I have people, you know, from even from high school say that they've now received a diagnosis. Um, you know, I went to an all girls school, so maybe they were better at masking. I kind of feel that girls in a way have a lot more social pressure from other girls to mask to Mm -hmm. appear a certain way to take on certain interests and I kind of feel that boys have a bit more freedom to be a bit more loud a bit more spontaneous Mm. it's more like a sexism thing but um you know I also feel that um these diagnoses are very difficult to get if you are low income especially Mm -hmm. families I definitely think there are a lot of families at my primary school who probably didn't have the ability to access a donate a, a diagnosis because of poverty, but um definitely showed signs of being autistic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of also societal sort of stigmas around being autistic and a lot of cultural stigmas about it as well. I, you know, um, you know, I've in Malta we have um we had fortunately they passed away a couple of weeks ago. But uh, we have an auntie who we are I am certain is autistic or was autistic mm-hmm. and you know and she this person never received any sort of confirmation about their disability but I think there was a strong social stigma against autism in a lot of cultures in a lot of societies in a lot of even in like classes it's something that is considered shameful something to be considered hidden away and I think a one part of coming to terms with a diagnosis is that you have to, you know, accept that there are going to be societal stigmas, going to be um, mm-hmm. social stigmas about being autistic. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely have that thing uh, resonate with that thing of having a family member who was never diagnosed, but definitely on like autistic. Um, that's my, my nonno, my um, grandfather on my dad's side. Um showed all the symptoms but i guess because how poor he grew up and i guess even in australia the last 50 years is like that's just who he is is just a a wog who barely speaks english so people didn't really know until the last few years where kind of a lot of my cousins started getting diagnosis and me then but it kind of clicked for us. It's okay. It, is, it kind of does run in the family um, at different levels for each one, everyone as well. I definitely think, you know, culturally, particularly in that part of the world, family, having a connection with family is such an important thing. And it's sort of mm-hmm. like 
a lot of this, my dad is definitely don't tell anyone. She'll be cured. Don't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it'll go away. She'll grow out of it. She might behave very badly at family events, just scream in her face when she's in the car on the way home and she'll be, she'll be better. It doesn't mm-hmm. work like that. And I think that there is definitely a sense of cultural, you know, maybe when they, when I, because I'm, I'm guaranteed that my grandma has it too. I guarantee my grandma has it. On mm-hmm. my, I think both my grandparents had some sort of autism, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, I, there was definitely like, um, I'm, on my mum's side, my, on my mum's side definitely had some sort of autism going on. Both both my grandparents there had something going on with autism, but on my mm-hmm. dad's side, my grandma, I definitely reckon she had at least some sort of anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. And you know, I kind of feel that as the older you get, in you know, for Malta especially, you just Quirky, the quirky uncle, quirky family, quirky mum. Yeah. The child's like, you know, respect, you know, respect your elders, don't be different. Yeah. It's just, it's, it becomes a very painful thing as you get older. It becomes a very painful thing to feel that, you know, your family just cannot accept you no matter what they can do, no matter what you do, no matter how you achieve, your family just sees the A word. That's it. That's mm-hmm. all we see about you. And I think that it's a very difficult part. And it's like, you know, mask, mask, mask. And, you know, you'll get over it. You'll recover. You'll learn. It just mm-hmm. becomes a very tedious cultural thing. And it's definitely something that I feel is in in our culture, very big in our culture. And I, I just think that, you know, changing the stigmas, particularly in families, is something that needs to be done sooner than anything in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to touch on the what you were saying about masking before because yes. I definitely agree about what you are saying that women tend to mask better than men. But the thing is I, I've always resonated more with women and had more female friends growing up. Um. And I think that has contributed to me being a better masker or I'm not sure if it's the other way around because um, I guess I feel, I guess, less masculine than the um, the societal expectation that I am just naturally a better masker because I'm more touchy with my emotions and that sort of thing. Um but that, I feel like that's also contributed to me like hiding things away because I just wouldn't speak growing up really. Like I would, but like I'll be quiet. I would never get in trouble and never draw attention to myself. I was really good at school initially, um, burnt out in the middle years. Then I guess when I accepted there was something different about me, not saying it was autism, I got better at school again. And since then, I have kind of gone this journey of self-discovery and realized, oh, wow, it was a lot I was hiding. And my parents have been quite shocked at that. Like, as I've just decided to stop masking, um, a lot of my family are just like, wow, where did this come from? And, yeah, it's a bit hard to for them to adapt like they're trying but they just don't understand and it's very difficult to educate it's just like you know i think that you know as a child my mum was like there were some friends she told but other than that 
just thought I'd grow out of it. Don't have to start telling anyone. Keep it a secret. And one thing my mum is really big on is don't make it public because your employer is going to find out and they're going to just throw your resume in the bin. And she's not wrong. I think it is definitely true. And it makes me extremely angry that that Rouge and Major just thrown in the bin because autistic people are not seen as employees, uh, valuable employees. And I think one of the parts that pisses me off the most is that a lot of employers just have a disabled employee that they, you know, that they will post photos of on Disability, you know, week, you know, Disability Pride Month. Look at our amazing um, disabled employee because I hate that so much because it implies that workplaces are not for autistic people. It implies autistic people should be grateful for having a compassionate workplace just took them on to feel better about themselves. But, you know, it's, it's just not an inclusive workspace if they're going to do, do that. And the one I hate the most is the heartwarming disabled, you know, heartwarming post about this adorable disabled employee. And I just think it's so annoying and so patronising about disability that Workplaces just can't accept a disabled employee on their merits. They say, oh, oh, they've done some disability work. That's cool. But look at their other resume credits. Look at it. It's perfect for the perfect for the job. Actually better than, you know, perfect for the job. We'll take them on. They seem like a great employee. They reference really well. All they see is the disability. And an inclusive workplace, in my opinion, is a workplace that takes on employees based on their experience, based on their qualifications, and, you know, it allows autistic people to, you know, stim to to make the workplace work for them, but does the, you know, but also complete their work within reason. Um, and, you know, for Disability Pride Month, they just, they celebrate their autistic employees' experiences, let them talk about how the, the, their disability is part of their life and also celebrates their amazing achievements. Yeah. And... On that, that's what I really liked about Radio Monash and why I was there for so long is because it basically became a place for uh, people who weren't really accepted into other social groups. Um, it's not exactly the same as a workplace, but the amount of work we end up doing, it pretty much was. Um, and it was just a place where it was accepted for you to like have a safe place where I was about to say have meltdowns, but I don't think I ever had one over Radio Monash because of how safe it felt. And um, that there's always someone who understood you there. And I guess, yeah, like I'm in a new workplace at the moment, which is very welcome, welcoming, but also like you can tell that they've not, they're just, I'm not saying they're malicious or anything, but there's, uh, there's no idea about um disability and all that and sometimes it's something they say slips out and i just don't know how to deal with that um but i'm sure once i find out that i like am neurodivergent and um autistic they might have different opinions on that is what i'm hoping because i'm showing that i'm good at my job i might not be good at socializing at the job but everything else i Excel at one of the things that sucks about um jobs for um you know a lot of the stuff autistic people do like my um job at Razor Platform is that it is volunteer. 
um, you know, it's very difficult that, you know, we can get so many volunteer roles, achieve so much in our volunteering, but as soon as we um, take that step, take that step to the paid, it doesn't happen. Like, I'm putting this back in what it's like to be an executive producer and also present on the show is that you have to prepare um, a run sheet before every episode if we're having, you know, if we have like a um, non-interview. Um, I've already prepared much for these interviews because I just wanted to be a bit more spontaneous. Um, and then it actually has a lot more to do with um, a little bit of parting I did today, actually. Um, but then you go into the, um, you know, the studio when you broadcast live. I do the mics. I do the jazzler. I do the mics. Put one on mic and speak and, you know, adjust the audio levels, program the songs to play, all live whilst talking about whatever I'm talking about with the run sheet it is like doing four or five things at once mm-hmm. it's incredibly demanding on the body and unfortunately some people don't understand that this is not something anyone can do it is something you have to be talented or something to be and you're also going to be very brave same as being an actor on stage it is so demanding on the body that most people i speak to just regular people no no disability no nor autistic Say, I can't do that. That's an amazing achievement. But, you know, mm-hmm. employers and the general people of society just cannot look past the disability. They mm-hmm. see the A word and they just say no. And it breaks mm-hmm. you from the inside of your soul. Yeah. I feel like I'm, I guess, I'm not sure if I'm in the right perspective to see this, but I feel like I'm, the stigma the stigma is starting to settle down a little bit um as people learn more about it but i agree that it needs to be taught in schools more it needs to be both ADHD and autism needs to be taught in schools people need to be told if they are autistic and also the positives of being autistic need to be celebrated more because like i see it as like so many things which I am good at is because of these those traits of um sticking to run sheets, organizing, having uh I don't know my brain is is skipping all over the place. I can't think straight. <laughs> That's one of the negatives. Um but just I feel like I don't know, just being orderly and all that is something that is very different. And also I feel like it also becomes useful because like if anyone asks a question about like something mechanical at my work or chemical, because I really like those logical topics and all that, I've just know so much about it. I can explain anything to them about it which I feel is something unique to um, neurodivergence and um, people on the spectrum. Yeah, I definitely think that for sure. But um, I also think that, like, you know, autistic people are not often stereotyped with these sort of thoughts as well. And those that don't have those sorts of perspectives are, you know, just really sort of they don't fit the stereotype. And you know, you can some autistic people think very logically, but they think very logically about things like writing, about you know, about um, sort of acting 
and sort of and not really about like maths. They often, you know, the whole stereotype of autistic people good at maths, you know, is you know it's true for some people. But unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of people who don't fit into that stereotype who unfortunately um, I feel are often left behind in a lot of discussions on autism. And I'm not particularly mathematical. I struggle a lot with maths. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I can be very written sort of. Yeah. And, and artistic as well. Yes, and that's another one, you know, sort of how you um, view art and, you know, how you view um, design. And, you know, autistic people have so many skills that are not celebrated. And it's actually now that a lot of, you know, the government organisations are actually starting to seeing how they can be more inclusive because these skills of logic are so valuable to a lot of companies and they're starting to really wake up. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another thing is often a bit of an autistic trait that is often overlooked is just the compassion. A lot of autistic people are very compassionate. They're very caring and, you know, and that is something that is now being considered because back in the day, the stereotype was autistic people are very utilitarian. They, you know, they're very logical and they don't really think about the more compassionate side. But that's yeah. actually completely not true. And these sort of stereotypes are so harmful and the fact that they are – 99% of the time not even true is completely absurd. Another stereotype that I get that is very negative is that we're creepy, and that is one that I find particularly offensive because, mm-hmm. you know, the reason why we're often creepy is that we often denied an appropriate education on those sort of topics. So we yeah, don't know how to interact with boundaries. Them. Yeah, we're not really – we're often denied education that will help us with boundaries, but, you know – and, you know, I've made mistakes and it's taken me years to sort of accept and understand those mistakes. And, you know, if I was given the education when I had the chance, I probably wouldn't have made those mistakes. And that's a really difficult thing to really grapple with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one question on the autism test that really resonated with me the most was, um, it was something like, I often told what you said is impolite, even though you thought it was perfectly polite. And yeah. I feel like that's happened so much at the time. I've become like depressed for years over those situations because yeah. I just don't understand what I've done to upset these people. And I yeah. still don't understand. I had a very negative experience in a play about a, two years ago now. I was in a play. There was a person who I was chatting to. He was a photographer. And, you know, I was talking to him about messenger about photography. I talked to him about, you know, I'm starting. I, my family members were very big photographers back in the day. And I decided I want to do photography. My grandma's house actually had its own dark room. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're starting to accept that we're moving back there. And, you know, I want to use the dark room. And so I started chatting to this person. And I sent him a message by mistake that was actually intended for someone else. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize. And it was one quick message that was probably a little bit inappropriate, but, um, you know, and the person complained to the director of the play and said, you're careful about messaging. And, like, firstly, I didn't even realize, and it was an absolute mistake. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, maybe I was, you know, when I read over the message, I think, you know, they're a bit intrude, they're a bit, you know, not very well thought out messages. They're a bit, they're not really to the point. 
But it's also like, why didn't this person just tell me, speak more, you know, speak more clearly? And I would have listened. And, you know, it's hard because if I didn't offend or upset this person, it's like, I'm sorry. But I also think that they had an obligation to, you know, not do it how they did. And, you know, it's just, it's very hard that, you know, it also is they unfriended me on Facebook about a year ago and asked them why. And they said, oh, it's because you're, um, you know, I don't really see you much anymore. I'm like, why didn't you unfriend? Why didn't you unfriend anyone else who you don't see very much? And it's like, the person obviously didn't want anything to do with me anymore, but they didn't have the decency to like explain why. And if they didn't want to spend time with me, I would have been okay or take responsibility and stuff. But I feel they have an obligation too to not be a creep. And of course, I've got my legendary experience that has traumatized me to this day with the Monash Socialist Society. They didn't want me anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't want them anymore. It's just like the way the way that they told me that Beth told me is just so offensive, mm-hmm. and it hurts me. It 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 echoes in my mind every single day what she said to me, and mm-hmm. you know I have spoken about the psychologists, but you know you know who cared about the least Monash Safer Communities Unit. They cared mm-hmm. the least, and you know it's taken me years to you know make a case with them against this person and to take to get justice for her and how many other people that, you know, these people have harmed, you know, by just not making accessibility arrangements, not telling me I was, you know, earlier where I had the chance to change my behaviour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That There's a whole structural issue, like, especially I think universities and schools really show that, um, I guess I'm mostly familiar with um universities. Um I guess like oh this is more speaking from an ADHD perspective, but like the only way they would um actually um try to uh, help you is like, oh, you just need extra time. That that will that solves your issues of you learning in a completely different way to everyone else in this class. And like, but show like in I studied chemistry, in the in person practical parts of it, where actually you've got to do problem solving, you actually got to do difficult stuff, you got to research on your own, you got to read. I was getting ninety five to one hundred percent on every assignment, but when it came to the exams, which required you for watching a boring two hour lecture, and um, reading long articles which didn't really like have any interest to them I struggled so much and it pulled down my scores to about 70 percent and that was only weighted about 40 percent the exam um and just like so- weights exams these days in science units by so much and it's yeah. something that has emerged as they restructured the university and it is super duper ableist to just wait an exam and I think the whole exam system just needs to be thrown out and it's how VCE works and so Mm. many autistic people fail VCE Mm -hmm. and you know what they do is that with VCEs they make you do that three hour English exam which is nothing Mm -hmm. how English works at a university level Mm -hmm. and it's ridiculous and you know it's designed you know they say oh it's to separate the cream from the crop only yeah. the cream who can take exams perfectly have any chance of getting into law. And it's just, it's wrong and it has to change. And 
Other countries like the Netherlands, Sweden, Norway do school system in a much more accessible way. And it just absolutely, they have made their school system so much more inclusive for Mm -hmm. people. And so many people who otherwise would not have had an opportunity in the school system now have now gone to university. And why can't us in Australia just make you know, we used to have a um, HSC purely was exam. There was no SACs. There were no SACs in mm-hmm. HSC. You you had the exam and that was it. In China, it's like a 15, it's like a huge exam and that's it. That's your only choice. And it's like the hardest mm-hmm. exam in the world. In the US, the system is slightly better where you sort of know your score. It's, it's sort of like university at school. You have like yeah. a GPA. It's slightly better. But Scandinavian countries, Europe, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's so much better. It's just like, and also in a lot of these countries, there is no shame about taking the vocational choice. Yeah. And yeah, um, I did one vet subject and because like I felt so much more passion towards it, I went really well in it compared to everything else. Like I overall went quite well at school somehow, because I think it's because I accepted, I learned differently. I'm not sure why. And I'll do things like skip classes for this vet subject and it paid off in the end. Um, And when my school, like, especially I I got the, I got a 50 in that subject and my school came straight to me. It's like, oh my God, you got to tell us how you did this. How did you get through year 12 to get such a good score? And I was just like, it was just, I was passionate about the subject. I'm not particularly good at the subject. Uh, like, it was for the music industry. Like, I know a lot about it. It's just because I had a passion for it and I had some sort of drive. But for English, I didn't have that same drive because mainly because I didn't understand a lot of the, what the books were saying. All of my interpretations were completely different and told were wrong um, by my teachers. Um but like when there was a one subject that let you thrive or let me thrive, it, um, I guess it felt it resonate so much more. And I feel like a lot of other subjects could take that same approach and I'm sure they do. I haven't really looked into the syllabuses, but. I think it's such a resonating thing. And it's also our thing is, you know, as autistic people, we find spaces that we feel safe in and we mm-hmm. go in those spaces, even though those spaces are not the ones that, you know, we want, um, you know, the people, the society wants us and it's it's really difficult to sort of find space as an autistic person that is safe and mm-hmm. to really explore, um, you know, safe spaces. And I think a lot of autistic people have found that queer spaces are very safe and, mm-hmm. you know, queerness is a part of, in my opinion, a part of autism that is integral. We are, you know, we experience gender differently. And I thought it, there's a book which says that all disabled people are queer by nature, that we are queer. And -hmm. I think that really resonates with a lot of autistic people. We experience sexuality differently. We experience gender differently. And a lot of us are not gender, not fitting in within the binary of male and female. And those, Mm -hmm. the male and female came from the able-bodied, the the, the definitions. They are not inclusive. And that's why so many autistic people do not fit into them, and that is why you have to understand that if you are in an autistic space, 
you are going to have a lot more people who do not identify with them. Same with sexualities, um, straight and gay and not, you know, they are meant to buy the able-bodied. A lot of autistic people are between them, pansexual, bisexual, um, polysexual, and, you know, we don't, you know, have relationships that are sexual in the same way that the straight community or the, you know, the, I mean, the able-bodied community will. So you have to sort of accept that. That's why so many of, uh, um, queer people are autistic, so many autistic people are queer. Yeah. What's the name of that book? I want to read it. Um, Sex and Disability. I think it's in the Disability and Carers Lounge. It's been in there for okay, a while, but they they redid the lounge and, well, it, they've moved everything. Okay, I'll, I'll go past tomorrow and have a look for it. But that's really, like, make... That's something I need to think about now because I've had that sort of question before because I feel like I, so basically for context, for most listening, if you don't know me, I'm cis straight. That's the way I come off and all that um, to everyone. But I feel most comfortable around queer people and um, am most accepted by that community. And I guess as I more think, I think about it more, People just when they meet me think automatically that I'm bi for some reason, and I guess I've have to I've thought about it more, and it's just because I'm not conforming to the masculine stereotype, um, because I don't necessarily see how that works and why I should stick to it. I just find it stupid. So I think I'm sitting somewhere on that spectrum. But, like, the reason why I've never gone to putting a label on it is because I just feel like I I just find the whole concept of gender so stupid that, like, it's just all it is, is about is how Australian culture, uh, like, understands gender. In Greece, it's completely different. In Italy, it's completely different. Again, um, Eastern culture is completely different as well. And I, I don't know, I just feel like I don't know where I fit in on that. And I'm still in that, that process because I feel like I want, I feel like I am welcomed by this community, but I'm not part of it. That makes sense. I think when you start experimenting with pronouns, experimenting with sexualities, I think it sort of becomes more part of who you are, sort mm-hmm. of, you know, trolling out presentations, sort of being more comfortable in your posture, in your gait. And I think one part of, you know, one of the conversations we had in the Queer Lounge many years ago was, you know, how you sit, how you present. Mm -hmm. Something is very personal to you and it's something that, you know, only you really can truly understand that it's about finding that pronoun. It's about, you know, experimenting with that pronoun and seeing how, you feel about yourself versus how you can express that in words. It's one of the most incredible experiences you'll ever go through and is emotional. It's going to be a lot of burnout, but in the end you will be so much happier when you can really say, this is who I am, just sort of put, you know, the male and female to the side. Mm-hmm. Except that it is just rubbish invented by people who don't really understand how certain people act and how certain people sort of interact absolutely and i think well thank you very much nick it's sort of come to an end all right thanks very much Amy. i really enjoyed this having this conversation with you 
And I think it's given me a lot to think about as well. 